0: Exodus chapter 5 is our text this morning. We'll be reading the whole chapter, though we'll take a couple of weeks to study it. Those of you newer to us uh, may not be aware that we study through this, through the Bible. We study through this, studying through this whole book, verse by verse and chapter by chapter. And in the book of Exodus, we're encountering this greatest redemptive event in the Old Testament. That was a true redemptive event. God did set free hundreds of thousands of people made in His image, held in bondage and slavery for over 400 years. And He judged that that must not be, and He liberated them because they were image bearers of His. They were also His people. And they were the people through whom the Messiah would come, the the line that God was preserving through whom the Messiah would come. And he had made a promise in Genesis 3 that he would preserve that line and the devil himself would attack it, but he would preserve it. And so we're looking at this redemption through the book of Exodus, this redemption of the Old Testament people of God, and we're seeing our redemption that this was a bondage that was sponsored by, empowered by the evil one himself, and God defeated that enemy and delivered them, but he's also delivering them from their own unbelief. We're walking with these people, these Old Testament people of God who are our brothers and sisters, and we are seeing how God promises to deliver us too. We see here a real life, real-time redemption from the powers of evil and human bondage, and it encourages us that God is working the same cosmic redemption. Maybe you've been walking with Christ for a long time, but you, like this pastor can, have doubted that Jesus is enough. And even in Exodus 5... Jesus meets us and says, I am enough. Let's, pr- let's look at verse 1. We'll read through the whole chapter, but study only verses 1 through 9. Afterward, Moses and <clears throat> Aaron went, to, went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, the God of Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. And gather straw for themselves, but the number of bricks that they made in the past shall, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foreman of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. Taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work. Your daily task each day is when there was straw. And the foreman of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That's why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge because you've made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. And Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. but The word of our God stands forever. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you open our eyes, pastor and people to see that in suffering you are no less good and no less strong, and that in suffering you work afresh and in distinct ways the miracle of the gospel in us. Oh, Lord, thank you for including us in your work that we might prove to the world the reality of Christ, and for those gathered here this morning or within the sound of my voice, who do not know Christ in a personal way. Would you through this word convert them? Would you through our, by your faithfulness in our lives, bring them to relationship with our Father? In Jesus' name we pray it. God's people said, amen. <clears throat> First church I pastored, there was a woman who had been who had come to Christ many years before. She lived in the neighborhood where the church was, and her next door neighbor had led her to Christ. This woman was uh, very talented and, and knew it and had great pride in her talent. She also had a hot temper. She was talented, she was proud, she had a hot temper and she had little rambunctious babies. Not a great combination. She also had a mean husband. When she came to Christ, he resented it. He didn't like this new religious thing she was involved with. One of her great weaknesses, one of the buttons anyone could push, would be to disrupt her sleep. She didn't get a lot of it as a young mom. And one day, the babies were asleep. She saw an opportunity for a nap. She curled up on the couch, and she was sinking. She had sunk deeply in sleep. Her husband came home from work unexpected, saw her sleeping, and thought he would test her. He got within inches of her face and then yelled, wake up, which would normally elicit a tirade. He also backed up because it would normally elicit swinging limbs. But she said, Why did you wake me up? And he said, I wanted to see if this religious thing is real. It would be many years. Before he would come to Christ, it would be in my pastorate nothing to do with me, but all to do with the Spirit working in her. As she spoke faithfully to him of the Christ who was daily saving her. As she suffered under his leadership, as she suffered in life, suffered life circumstances, as she struggled against her own sin, and she spoke about a faithful Savior, it eventually convinced him. It was not just her word, but it was the power of the gospel, a deeper love in her, that could not be explained circumstantially. It was that combination of spoken word and suffering that convinced him eventually that this religious thing was not a passing fad, but was a real, transformative, eternally significant relationship with Christ. Maybe you can identify with these Israelites. That when God stepped into your life through Christ, life became harder, not easier. Maybe you were presented a false gospel, a false gospel that said, you just give your life to Christ, everything will be a bed of roses here on out. You name it and claim it. It'll be comfort and health and wealth from here on out, and you've discovered something different. It's not because Jesus lied to you because Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles. Jesus said, take up my cross and follow me. Jesus said, you must die to self and live to me. And Jesus said, though the world takes your life away, you will live forever with me. And in the meantime, I'm dignifying you by using you to demonstrate to the world a deeper, more profound truth found in a loving relationship with Christ? How do we see it even in this passage? Because when moses representing christ steps into this place where he becomes the agent of christ to redeem his people from this bondage because they're image bears of god but also because through this line the savior must come so jesus must christ must come through moses into pharaoh's court and say let my people go by that spoken word pharaoh is eventually Defeated By that spoken word, the people of God eventually believe. By that spoken word, by a weak man, Pharaoh eventually has to obey. And you've been given that same spoken word. You've been given that same gospel that says, let my people go. Let people go. You have even that same gospel word that says, this Faith in Christ can deliver you from spiritual bondage and hopelessness in this life. And it's a word that must be spoken in love. A couple of things you need to remember, a couple of things that are important to remember that are illustrated positively or negatively in this passage about speaking that word. And one is that you must presuppose that the word that you've been entrusted, the whole gospel that is outlined in the whole of the Bible, that this is true, that it is absolutely true. True, and you must also with confidence presuppose that the person to whom you're speaking knows it. They don't know how they know it exactly, but they know according to Romans 1.18 and Romans 2.15. that they, they know, they have enough to know that there is a God. And their consciences have been imprinted with God's law. So when you speak a word, when you give a testimony of what the Bible says, you may know that though they've never heard it before, and though they are protesting it with their word, in, with their words, in their heart of hearts, in their consciences, they know it's true. It's like, it's like, it's like striking a tuning fork and, and holding it up to a resonant string in a piano and, uh, and, and it, it's vibrating. That's what, the, that's what the Word of God does. It vibrates, it resonates within the conscience of one made in the image of God, and you must speak that word confidently. Old Testament scholars like our own Mary Wilson call this This uh, statement that Moses makes, a prophetic messenger speech. A prophetic messenger speech. Moses says it here Thus saith the Lord. We'll see it in prophets thereafter, the major prophets, the minor prophets. They step into every situation to which God sends them and they say, Thus saith the Lord. Now, people. People may oppose them. People may contest them. People may say, Yuma, you've got to prove that. But they never start by conceding ground to the other party. They never start by conceding ground to the unbeliever to say, just what, way, what do I have to convince you of before I have permission with which to say, thus saith the Lord. They just start with, thus saith the Lord. They start with it because they they presuppose that it is true, and the person to whom they're speaking knows in his or her heart of hearts it is true. It's one of the great legacies of Billy Graham, whose, whose response to everything, whose preface to every statement was, the Bible says, God says. Now, we don't do it carelessly. We don't do it... Uh, with, uh, uh, in, in a maverick way. We don't do it in an uncaring way. We take people's questions seriously. We come to them tenderly. The Bible says, too, that we must reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Some of us really like those words, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Some of us really like that command to speak the truth in love, but the, speak the truth. But the rest of it is speak the truth in love. The rest of it is reprove, rebuke, exhort with gentleness and patient instruction. Gentleness and, gentleness and patient instruction include the confidence that this image-bearer knows that what you're saying is true. Now, practically, that means this. First of all, it means you need to know the Bible. You need to, you need to know the facts about the Bible so that it might transform you into a gracious person so that you might do what the Bible commands. Knowing the Bible requires studying it, studying it morning and evening in worship. It requires, or, or, or it's, it's helped by studying in other contexts too, and those are provided through the ministries of this church as well in your Sunday school class or your, Christian, your, your congregational community. It's, it's provided by Bible studies, it's provided by podcasts, it's provided by faithful Bible teachers in all kinds of ways. Now, let me just, for the sake of time, give you some very, very practical ways. For those of you who are newer to the Bible, who are intimidated by the Bible, let me tell you, as one who didn't grow up with the Bible, how one of the, some of the strategies that people helped me with in learning with the Bible, not only the facts about the Bible, and how it fits together, but what, what the theology is. And it begins with whatever age you are, if, if you're not familiar with the Bible, start by reading a children's Bible. Don't be embarrassed. If you're embarrassed, just do it under the covers or in the bathroom or somewhere for somebody can see you. But, but start with it. And here's one you can start with. Start with the Jesus Storybook Bible. Sally Lloyd-Jones. And the reason I say that is because not only will you learn the major building blocks of the Bible, major stories, and how it all fits together, but the, how it flows, how the whole Bible is about Jesus. And then move up, move up to the next one we used with our children. It's out of print, but you can find it. Somebody just found it recently in our church. It's by Dina Korfker, K-O-R-F-K-E-R, Korfker. I don't remember the title of it, but that name is unique, Dina Korfker, and again, she just does the same thing, though much earlier than Sally Lloyd Jones. It's just, it's just more, more stories, and each story shows you how that story is pointing toward Christ. And then study the catechism. You know, we 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 teach, we're trying to teach how to study the Bible. In the morning services, and the evening services, we're preaching through the catechism. The catechism is just a question and answer, a strategy for teaching people the basic theology of Scripture, how it all holds together. So know your Bible. And those categories, that basic insight into the Bible will, will help you speak the truth. But you don't have to be a theologian either, you don't have to be a master of the Bible to share your testimony of this is what God has taught me, it is true, and I share it with you. The other thing you need to remember as you're, you're speaking the truth in love is, is to stand on it. Now here we, we, we learn from a negative example from, from Moses and Aaron how even these great Men, even these great champions of the faith could get weak need in the, in the face of opposition. There are a couple of indications that, that Moses and Aaron were intimidated by Pharaoh. The first is in verse 3, they say for the first time, the God of the Hebrews. Now, that's not a new phrase because that's what Pharaoh called him. Now, Moses and Aaron had been in the custom of saying, as in verse 1, the Lord, the God of Israel says, the Lord says, let my people go. But here, when he rebuffs them, when he, humili- or when, he when he strikes back against them, they say, well, yeah, the God of Hebrew, you know that guy that you've spoken negatively of? Well, yes, yeah, we concede like you, his name is the God of the Hebrews, and then here's maybe another, maybe another indication of their intimidation when they say, you know, we better go into the wilderness and make sacrifices because if we don't, he could fall cause pestilence to fall on all of us, and that would be bad for you and for us. But if that's not enough to, to show that Moses was intimidated when When Pharaoh opposed him, you you can see that after the people of God also opposed him. When the people of God came to him and said, you're getting too radical. This, This good news is not as great as you said it would be. You just need to leave us alone. Moses, in verse 22 and following, gets very discouraged and complains to the Lord, you have done evil to these people and why did you ever send me here? You know the book of Hebrews says that Moses was not afraid of Pharaoh. So does the Bible contradict itself? Because here it seems that he's very afraid of Pharaoh, and yet Hebrews says he was not afraid of Pharaoh. Well, here's here's what the Bible teaches us about fear: fear is not a feeling, or fear is a feeling, but courage is not a feeling. Courage is a choice. Yes, Moses was afraid, but it did not permanently paralyze him. He spoke the truth. He, in the, he eventually stood on the truth, and he said, not only am I telling you let my people go, but my people are going. They're going with me. He could have, his knees could have been shaking as he was leading his people out, but courage is believing the Word of God. And going forward by faith in his power and his promise regardless. Stand on the truth. Just a word. Just any word from scripture can defeat an enemy. Let me give you an example. My favorite example. My friend Jerry Gutierrez, is a, <clears throat> who is a missionary, has been a missionary for many years in Chile, but he grew up in, he grew up in Peru, grew up in the mountains of Peru above Lima, came down uh, to go to uh, among the Quechua, Quechua's in, in uh, the mountains of Peru, and then came down to go to university, and he studied under a man named uh, Abimiel Guzmán who was the founder of the Shining Path guerrilla movement. It was a Marxist movement, and he had convinced his students, he took a little band of, of students, including my friend Jerry, and he, he discipled them in Marxism. And he said, you know, what we need to do is take up arms and deliver our people from this oppression and set up a new leader like they have in Soviet Russia. And this will set our people, our poor people, free. My friend Jerry eventually became the leader of that Shining Path guerrilla movement and was viewed to be the most terrifying and the most talented member of the movement. And one day he came across my other friend, Ruthie Marshall, whose father was a a pioneer missionary there. And Ruthie, even though it could have cost her her life, shared her faith with Jerry. Jerry. He dismissed it out of hand. Christianity is just more of that, that, that worldview and the hand of the powerful to keep us oppressed. But Ruthie continued to share her faith with him. And yet, and at the same time, her sharing was so loving, it was disarming to him. Her father wrote a, a support letter back to the United States, to those who are supporting him as a missionary, and he said, he shared with his supporters, please pray for Jerry. Can you imagine, he said, can you imagine what the Lord could do if he would save the most terrifying and talented Marxist leader in Peru? A little girl heard her mama read that Support letter, and the little girl said, I want to send Mr. Jerry a letter. She took out her stationery, which was teddy bear shaped stationery, and she wrote on it, Dear Mr. Jerry, I'm praying that you would give your heart to Jesus. She sent it to Harry Marshall. Harry Marshall gave it to Ruthie. Ruthie gave it to Jerry. And one week before Jerry Gutierrez was to go to Moscow to get advanced training in his guerrilla tactics and in, in Marxism and Communism, one week before he was to leave, he came to Christ. It's the way God delights to work. How can we take down the most powerful, most terrible, most terrifying, most talented leader of the Shining Path guerrilla movement in Peru? Well, let's send him a letter on teddy bear stationery written by a six-year-old. That's what God did. That's what God delights to do through you. He can take a Moses and send him to Pharaoh. Why couldn't he use you? Presuppose the truth and speak it courageously even when you're afraid. The other strategy we take up against the evil one who would intimidate us and who keeps people in bondage is, and this one's not so comfortable, is to prove the truth and the love of the gospel by suffering. Prove the truth and the love of the gospel by suffering. Now, in verses 4 to 9, we have the description of that suffering. Here here God sends Moses into Egypt, and he says, "Uh, Moses, I'm going to send you there, and you're to tell Pharaoh, let my people go, and they will go, and I'll take them into the promised land. He didn't really outline all the suffering that they would undergo before they were actually released. And here's where it came Pharaoh supposed, you know, what's happening is these people have too much time on their hands. What I'm going to do is I'm, gonna pay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to I'm gonna get them into the grind of work so much that they won't have time to have these foolish thoughts about liberation. And I'm also going to break their spirits down. I'll also expose their hypocrisy. Anybody could believe in a God who is going to release them from captivity and make them free. So what I'll do is I'll grind them down. Once I beat down their spirits, there's no way they will believe in God. And so man, Pharaoh at the time had a manic building prog- pro, uh, program going on, requiring thousands and thousands and thousands of bricks. And he kept the quota just as high, but he removed hay from the, from the ingredient. And the hay was critical to the making of bricks in a... In, a, in an efficient way because it was a binder for the clay. It provided humic acid as well when it reacted to the fire that, that hardened the bricks. And so he's saying, number one, I'm not going to bring you the hay anymore. I used to supply it. you got to go out and find it if you want it. You're g- going to find it for yourselves. And th- then I'm going to make you to, to make bricks so quickly you won't even have a chance sometimes to use hay. And then that will mean making more bricks because some of them will be fragile and they'll break. It was crushing work. It was demoralizing to the point that the Hebrew foreman came to Pharaoh and complained. And then notice what they do. They turn on Moses and Aaron. Yes, we know that you say that you are preaching good news, but that's too good to be true what you're promising is too good to be true. So better, really, the devil that we know than the devil we don't know, and the devil we don't know is killing us. We would rather be, we'd rather have straw again, and we can worship God in private than to believe this crazy thing that you could take us out of here and across the desert and into a new land and that a uh, Christ could come that could be the savior of the nations. Forget it. Just give us straw. Suffering does two things. When suffering comes into our life, it does two things. It proves God's power to keep us regardless of circumstances and it proves that his love for us is so profound that no matter what the devil throws at us no matter what god's people throw at us it can't make us unlove him because his first love for us is greater and where do we get all where do we, do we get that from moses you bet we do. Not in this text, but, you know, part of studying Scripture is to interpret one part of Scripture with another part of Scripture. And so it's important to go to Hebrews 11, for instance, or Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is a psalm written by Moses. Hebrews 11 is the description of Moses' faith. And Hebrews 11 says that Moses considered the riches of Christ more important, more, more to be treasured than the than the riches of Egypt. He was looking toward Christ because Christ was in him, causing him to long for him. He was powerful in him, preserving his faith. And in Psalm 90, Moses says, you know, when life gets most discouraging, even in old age, cause your steadfast love. Satisfy us with your steadfast, unfailing love. Those points, these points come from God's work in Moses. Suffering proves God's power. Suffering proves God's power. You know, for centuries, secularists have been saying that Christianity will die. Voltaire said it. Richard Dawkins said it, Stephen Hawking said it, Charles Taylor is now saying it. For centuries, they've told us that we're going to die. They can find some evidence in, in Western culture that Christianity is on the decline, but worldwide Christianity is growing faster than any other religion. 400 million plus believers in Africa. Many millions, who knows how many millions in China. More Christians have been martyred in the last two decades. Over a million, maybe two million Christians have been martyred in the last two decades than all of the centuries preceding. No matter how much persecution, no matter how much discouragement, no matter, no matter how much. How many times Christians are ridiculed, Christianity persists, real Christianity, not the Christianity that says, you know, if you come here, there'll be health and wealth and so forth. Our friends in China say that all of those churches in the recent persecution, all of those prosperity gospel churches have disappeared. But those that were founded on Christ founded on the Scripture, are enduring no matter what is thrown at them. You go to church, we're going to put you in prison. You go to church, we're going to beat up your grandmothers and your grandfathers. And despite what they do to them, Christianity prospers. The gospel increases. One of the strategies of of God's redeeming this world is to prove that His gospel is stronger than any opposition. You know, our culture might tell you, if you're suffering, it must be you're doing something wrong. Or if you're suffering, it must be because God's not good. If you're suffering, it must be because God's not all-powerful. But the gospel says, if you're suffering, it proves that Jesus has united his life to yours. And if you continue to praise Christ despite your suffering, it proves that everything that the Bible says is true. That nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, which is the next point. Suffering proves that there is a love that is deeper than all circumstances. That's what was proven in the life of Job. Satan said, what did Satan say to God about Job? You take his children away, he'll curse you to your face. You take his stuff away from him. You afflict his health and he'll turn on you. And without Job giving the explanation, God releases his hand and allows Satan to do that. Without ever condemning Job... Without ever saying, Job, you should have, you know, last Saturday night, you should have, or Job, you didn't do it just right with your children, so I've got to take your children. God never says that. The entire reason for Job's suffering was to prove that his first love of Job is stronger than any opposing circumstances. And at the end of the book of Job, we only see God and Job. We never see. We don't hear from the devil any longer. You're suffering. You're continuing to praise God from the dust. You're continuing to love Christ, despite the adverse circumstances, it is part of God's strategy, not just of leading others to Christ, not just to lead your fellow Christians to a deeper embrace of Christ. You're suffering, loving Christ despite your suffering. Is part of God's strategy of shutting the mouths of His cosmic enemies. Christ's love for you is so deep that you love Him despite what comes. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 1, 9. You love Him though you've never seen Him. Though you've never seen him, you love him. And he's writing it in the context of their suffering under the hand of a Roman emperor. And Christians suffered under every Roman emperor with the exception of Constantine. From the beginning of Christianity in the New Testament, they suffered. They were martyred. They were killed by the droves. And they suffered in every century since. And yet, we love him. What can explain it? Except Jesus loves us more. Even your pastor at times struggles to believe that Jesus is sufficient. I hate to disappoint you with that, but that's true. But, you know, it's always been my experience as the pastor that I preach the gospel to the people, and the people preach it back to me through their lives. Just the same here. Some of you, some of you oppose the gospel. You find it too hard to believe. That's true, too. I can identify with Moses at the end of this passage. And you might identify with Moses at the end of this passage, too, that Christians can, can heap abuse on you because they find it too good to be true. But this is where we need each other. We need to remind each other in those times of discouragement that this is what the Lord has done in me, and it proves the all-sufficiency of His love and His good news. Just a couple of days ago, a young man called me from a previous church. I've known him since he was in the fifth grade. He's now a grown man. He's a professional. I've never known him to wander from the faith. He was in worship every morning and evening. He was in Sunday school. He was in youth group. His, he has a great mom and dad. They're close friends too. He's always walked in the fear and admonition of the Lord as far as long as I've known him and we've stayed in contact And I also knew that he struggled with same-sex attraction. So when he said he needed to talk to me, I thought he was discouraged in that battle. He's never given in to it. He's always lived a celibate life, but I thought he was discouraged. So I I was ready to encourage him. He called and said, Pastor Robertson, I need some advice. How can I... Help my brothers and sisters to believe that Jesus is enough. How can I do that for my church? Recently met with my pastor and I said, you know, if you, just, if you could say from the pulpit, as others have said in the pulpit that I've heard, that if this is your struggle, then, then you're in the right place and, and Christ is enough for you. That's all you have to say. And the pastor said, I, I, I can't say that. I'm, I'm afraid people would misunderstand. He said, so I, when I say that, he says, I say that in my Sunday school class and I say, here's my struggle. And I found that Christ is enough and, and people are encouraged by that. How, how can I encourage my pastor to say that and the leaders of my church to say that? Well, he we talked a little bit about that, but then I, then I just, I listened to his testimony. He said, this has been a difficult struggle my entire life. But we have an emergency, Pastor Roberts, we have an emergency because there are people even claiming to be evangelicals or people claiming to be believers in the Bible, and they are telling people you can't struggle against it, you shouldn't struggle against it, you should just marry someone or you should just give in to it or it's good and he said that's dangerous because it's false the bible is clear and the bible is that's also true that there's better news we have better news to offer than that we have better news to offer than to just give in and give up we have the news that Jesus can satisfy all of your needs I have to confess it was a while before I could speak When he said something, he said something like this as well. You know, I have come to the point that if someone were to come to me and say, I'll take that struggle away from you. I'll take that cross away from you. I'll take that thorn in your flesh away from you. I would say to them, no, don't do it. Because it's driven me to Jesus. That brokenness has driven me to Jesus. And I've always found him to be more than enough. I said to him, I don't know that I have any advice to offer you. Except I need to say this. Thank you for preaching the gospel to me. I was tempted this very day. I said I was tempted this very day to think in this situation in my life, Christ is not enough. But you have convinced me in this area that the world says no one can live without that. No one can live without that indulgence of the flesh. You have said, oh, yes, they can. And Christ can help you and not only preserve you, but make you joyful. I never could have believed it, I said, as deeply as I do today if you had not shared your testimony with me. That's just one example of suffering. May not be yours, but it's the same category. Whatever you're suffering, whatever you're deprived of, whatever point you're tempted to say, God is not good, and Christ cannot be enough for this area, you must realize not only that he is, but and he's not just called you to, to make it, to survive, but he has allowed this suffering in your life to dignify you as a participant in his apologetic to this world, his proof that God is good all the time in Jesus Christ who suffers with us and in us as one who for the joy set before him endured the cross and mocked the shame of it and became more and is becoming more than a conqueror in your life. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is easy to become overwhelmed by what seems to be a majority of the world and news coverage of the world, the united voice of the world that says the good news is that every indulgence and every pursuit of comfort is open to you. We pray that You would convince us that the gospel is not only the best news, it's the only news, restoring us to who we are in the image of God and giving us a joy and a conviction of love by no one less than God the Creator. We pray, Lord Jesus, get a name for Yourself, even in our suffering. Even in our persecution, we pray it in the strong name of Christ. God's people said, amen.